Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. Welcome, one and all. I wanted to just recap. This is the sixth chapter of the Gita, which is particularly dedicated to yoga practice. The, the Gita, which is a very short text, is compact in its knowledge. It touches on everything from good governance to the structure of a balanced social system, cosmology. It touches on health, wellness, and diet. It speaks about the purpose behind creation, the various planetary systems. It discusses at least 10 different yoga systems. There's an analysis by Krishna on human psychology, the way the mind focuses on an object and that attention develops into a desire and desire into action, which is, by the way, an interesting formula for uh, abuse, uh, drug abuse, or other sorts of dependencies to learn to capture a thought before it becomes a desire. That's a whole other discussion that we could have. There are many topics in the Gita, six chapters specifically about the yoga system. And I wanted to recap quickly where we've come to in this sixth chapter. It starts off by Sri Krishna describing for Arjuna that real yoga means engagement in the world. Remember context, Arjuna wishes to move away from battlefield. The first thing you do when, there's, when you confront something you don't want to do is you rationalize why you shouldn't do it. And that's what Arjuna has done. And Krishna says, slow down. You're misinterpreting what yoga means. Yoga means to be deeper into the life you have, not to covet some life you do not have. He starts off with that in the sixth chapter. And then he goes into a description of that someone is elevated in yoga when having renounced material desire, he acts for the well-being of others. The Sanskrit is loka sangraha, loka or the world or all people, sangraha, the, the well-being of all um, is the ultimate flower of yoga practice. Then moving into the fifth and sixth verses, focus on the mind. Yoga as initially, from the beginning, a practice of understanding the workings of the mind and how to control those workings. We discussed how the purpose of the mind is to accept and reject. It's a very fast reflex, and it's meant to be quick because it's a, it's a survival instinct. You don't want to be going into deep analysis and contemplation if there's a car coming at you. You just want to get out of the way. So Krishna is describing for Arjuna, you cannot practice yoga if you allow thoughts to take control of your life. And then he says this interesting thing in the seventh verse, that if you do that, the super soul is already reached. Super soul or paramatma is a palpable presence of divinity in the heart of all living beings. Not just a hallmark card that God is in your heart, but an actual physical presence or metaphysical presence that is the source, if you will, of higher wisdom. When we slow down, when we take the time to breathe and listen to that deeper inner voice of wisdom, the source of that wisdom is paramatma. And it takes some practice, but eventually we can be in touch with that source of inner wisdom 24-7. He then goes on to describe that a person is considered even further advanced in yoga. This is the ninth verse. When he regards honest well-wishers, listen to this. A person is considered still further advanced in yoga when he considers honest well-wishers, affectionate benefactors, the neutral, mediators, the envious, friends and enemies, the pious and the sinners, all with an equal mind. Imagine what Arjuna must have been thinking. Here he is on a battlefield, and Krishna is saying, you're dear to me if you see your enemies 
with the same honor and respect as your friends. Now go kill your enemies. How, how do we reconcile these things? This is a big mystery of the Gita. Then moving on to verses, um, starting with verse 12, where Krishna describes the actual system of yogic, uh, mystic yoga practice. You go to a secluded place, you stop breathing, you stop eating, you stop doing everything, focused on the tip of the nose, eyes half closed so you don't fall asleep and you don't get distracted by things around you, merge the incoming and outgoing breath, and Arjuna says, can't do it, too hard for me. And now we're coming a little bit closer to today's verse, where Krishna, by verses 17, 18, says, at least be regulated, at least be moderate. He says in verse 17, he who is regulated in habits of eating, sleeping, recreation, and work can mitigate material pains by practicing the yoga system. Then this, this beautiful analogy that's very famous, as a lamp in a windless place does not waver, so the transcendentalist whose mind is controlled remains always steady in his meditation on the transcendental self. And then the last couple of classes, we've been talking about samadhi, trance, this amazing description in, in verses 20 through 23 about someone who has achieved that perfection of the yoga practice doesn't want anything anymore. They're home. They're free. They've reached the place they wanted to reach. Time disappears. What they do is in and of itself satisfying. There's a study that was conducted by the Hungarian sociologist Csikszentmihalyi, where he went around the world conducting interviews with 8,000 people all up and down the social economic scale of different countries, the head of Sony Industries and blind Sherpa cheesemakers and business heads and, and farmers, poets, painters. What he found was that the thing that makes people happy, he, he identified eight symptoms of what he called flow. He published a book in the late 80s called Flow or Optimal Experience. Same symptoms as in these four verses from sixth chapter, that you're happy in what you're doing. You're not doing it because there's some product that's going to come out at the other end. When, when he first started these interviews, he thought of a painter. Painter's going to be satisfied when the painting is done because then you can exhibit it, you can sell it, you can get it reviewed, you can build a reputation. It was in the act of painting. There's a, a, a kind of rhythm that's established in doing the work that you know you can do, that you feel good about doing. Everything else disappears. And something rather extraordinary, all of the people interviewed who had achieved this place of flow or optimal experience said that they felt they had disappeared. Now, obviously, if they're there to explain what they went through, they didn't totally disappear. But what disappeared was the material ego that very often makes of an act something selfish. They disappeared because the work took over. It was something that became a part of their being. And that's described here. I recommend you go back to these verses to just, to just review those symptoms of uh, samadhi. Now, uh, last week we talked about engaging in the practice of yoga with undeviating determination and faith and abandoning all desires born of mental speculation. We did a little bit of review. I apologize if, if that was a little too dense with sociological information. We talked about Max Weber and how the culture around us today is one that has evolved over time, that things weren't always so capitalistic, so consumer-oriented. There was a time pre-modern era when people worked just a few hours a day 
The rest of the time was reserved for prayer, meditation, study, communal activity. Uh, it was a very different kind of environment. Here's our verse for today, verse 25 of the sixth chapter. Gradually, step by step, one should become situated in trance by means of intelligence sustained by full conviction. And thus the mind should be fixed on the self alone and should think of nothing else. There's a very brief commentary here by Srila Prabhupada that I'd like to read. It's only about 10 lines. By proper conviction and intelligence, one should gradually cease sense activities. This is called pratyahara, the mind being controlled by conviction, meditation, and cessation from the senses should be situated in trance, or samadhi. At that time, there is no longer any danger of becoming engaged in material conceptions of life. In other words, although one is involved with matter, as long as the material body is, exists, one should not think about sense gratification. One should think of no pleasure aside from the pleasure of the Supreme Self. This state is easily attained by directly practicing what Prabhupada called Krishna consciousness. Where are we here? Well, Krishna continues to encourage Arjuna. He's telling him, this may, you may find this difficult, but you can do it. Krishna never asks of Arjuna anything that he's incapable of actually executing. That's the nature of a true teacher or guru. A guru does not ask anything unreasonable of a disciple. Uh, that's a hallmark of a healthy teacher-disciple relationship, is that there's some trust and confidence there. It's, it's a difficult thing to achieve. It's basically a, a relationship of love. If you've been in a loving relationship, <laughs> you may know that it takes work. It doesn't just come easily. So Arjuna is having... He had trust already in Krishna. They had known each other from childhood. They were childhood friends. Arjuna was married to Krishna's sister, so they had a family relationship as well. So even though they were in that very friendly, casual uh, relationship, at the end of the first chapter, Arjuna makes a very important decision. He says, Shishashteham saruman tvam prapannam. He said to Krishna, he said, I'm in trouble here. I don't know what to do. Please Accept me as your shisha. Shishasteham saduman tvam prapannam. I wish to set aside the friendly family relationship we have. I'd like you to mentor me. I need some guidance here. That's precious. That's a beautiful gift. I feel privileged that I had that with my teacher. I, I had a relationship of disciple and guru with someone who really set me up for the rest of my life. I, I think everything that's happened since then, that was in 1970. Everything that's happened since then has been filtered through that realization that here's someone who will never harm me. People ask very often, what was it like to be with Prabhupada? What was it like to be with a perfected yogi, you know, someone who knew God, spoke directly with divinity? The best way I can describe it was to say, you felt confident that this is someone who would never hurt you. This is someone who would never do anything other than for your benefit for your well-being. I knew someone, uh, this is an interesting story, it's a little aside, but I think you'll appreciate this. I knew someone who had been abused in her childhood, and it was by her stepfather. And uh, she was interested, she was coming to Gita classes at Jiva Mukti Yoga. She was coming regularly, every, every week, and uh, was chanting Japa, and uh, very enthusiastic. And then after all, I didn't see her 
And then I bumped into her and said, um, how come I haven't seen you around much? And she said, well, I'm finding myself attracted to Jesus. So we sat down <laughs> and talked about it. And to make a long discussion short, it turned out that she had concerns about Krishna because of the descriptions of Krishna dancing with the gopis and behaving a little bit like a playboy. And she felt herself more comfortable with Jesus because Jesus was a celibate. Interesting psychology here, that she was hesitant, concerned about Krishna because the description of Krishna is someone who plays freely with everyone. And in her mind, that kind of open play became associated with very dark experiences from early life. With Jesus, she saw someone who would not hurt her because of his social position, his spiritual position as a celibate teacher. So it's, I mean, it's fascinating how the, the psychology weaves its way into the transcendent teachings. And if we're fortunate, if we're lucky, we find someone who can sort things through for us and offer us guidance without triggering those, those concerns. Just one last point about the class last week. The, the idea behind giving you that history of how consumer capitalism developed was simply to say that that may be the environment we live in, but it does not define who we are. And the teachings of Gita, the practice of yoga, is a reminder of what our options are, that we have options. We do not have to be controlled by the environment around us, that there is a beautiful place, which is the original nature of the self, that yoga brings us to. And that's a foundation that we can really build a, a lovely culture around. Okay, I'm going to stop there. And let's open this up to some discussion. Yes. What does Krishna mean when he says the mind should be fixed on the self alone? Well, there's two selves that we can fix the mind on. One is our self, that is to say, the individual being, the inhabitant animating the body with consciousness. That's, if you might say, the self with a small s. The other self with a capital S is the Paramatma, the indwelling divinity, Krishna in the heart. Vedantic school of yoga focuses on those two selves as one and the same. The, the, the Vedantic idea is that we are divinity and that the perfection, the fulfillment of yoga is when you realize that you are Krishna, you are, you are everything. The Bhakti school says, well, that may be true qualitatively, but quantitatively, the individual self remains small while the supreme self is great. God is great, we are small. Like a drop of water in the ocean, the analogy is often used imperfectly to suggest that when that drop of water is deposited back in the ocean, it loses its individuality and it becomes one with the ocean. So the soul, realized of its eternal nature, again becomes one with all creation. Think about this for a moment. Does a drop of water actually become the ocean? No. You may not be able to see that drop anymore because it's disguised in the vast mass of ocean water. But a drop is never quantitatively equivalent to an ocean. So the self, with that small s, we, individual beings, 
we are one in quality with that supreme being, but never of the same quantity. What was your answer to the person who had the impression of Krishna as a playboy? Oh, well, you want to encourage people. So I did not try to discourage her. If that's the path that she's comfortable with, then she should pursue that path. I, I, I cannot say that I've ever met someone who was truly spiritually advanced, who impressed me, who touched me, who was sectarian in his or her perspective on things. I think, I think that may also be a, a sign of spiritual advancement, is that you're capable of seeing the truth in, in its many different forms. However, being a sectarian Krishnaite, <laughs> uh, we also talked about how it may be a misimpression to think that Krishna is a playboy. That relationship of Krishna and the gopi cowherd women of Vrindavan is technically known as madhurya rasa. The word rasa means flavor, varieties of flavors. In the bhakti realm, in the bhakti yoga, devotional yoga tradition, the word rasa applies to the different kinds of love. Those of you who have children, there's a parental rasa with your children. Uh, dasya rasa, a relationship of servitude or looking up to someone as a superior. And the, the madhurya rasa, the conjugal love, is the ecstatic, unfettered expression of the soul's ultimate volcanic love of God. And the imagery that surrounds that ex extended love uh, resembles erotic play between boys and girls. And to someone for whom that is fearful or dangerous, uh, it may appear to be wrong. So we talked about the difference between the material and the spiritual. But there was, I, I hope I didn't try, I don't think I was trying to convert <laughs> anyone to a different point of view. Prabhu. Yes, Yadunath. You, know, you, you mentioned in the purport, this line just caught me, so maybe you could just comment on this. In other words, although one is involved with matter as long as the material body exists, one should not think about sense gratification. Hello, what? <laughs> Isn't this the purpose of life? Yes, yes, we are pleasure-loving creatures. You're absolutely correct. So how is it possible to not... To not think about it. All right, here's the... The, the Gita's answer to that question. We're, we're born into this life with a kind of destiny. And just as you do not have to go out of your way to find sadness, to find challenges, to find sickness or setbacks, these, these things will find you out. You don't have to try to find them. In the same way, you don't have to try to find pleasure. Pleasure will find you out. You can save time. Focus on the noble themes and contributions that you can uniquely make to the world around you. And those other issues will get resolved automatically. It's very unusual. It's very un-American, that idea. Because, <laughs> you know, you we're born into a culture that says, you know, go for it. You know, yeah. Just be bold, be the individual you're meant Go, Go for it. So here's this view of life, which is, no. You don't need to. Those things are taken care of. I remember being on a morning walk with Prabhupada in Hyde Park, London. We walked by a tree and the, there were birds in the tree chirping away like crazy, having some kind of a jam session. Prabhupada said, they don't get up in the, morn in the morning worrying 
about how they're going to earn a living. God is providing for them. And he used to, uh, well, not exactly make fun. I think he felt great compassion for people who had to commute to work, which is something, because we're not doing that at the moment. But there was a time I was going an hour and, how what is it, Brian? An hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes into the city from here? Something like that. So two and a half hours at least every day, you know, commuting. Can I tell you a little story? We're running a few minutes over, but I, I want to tell you a story. It's, um, it's called the cracked pot. You might, I don't know if you heard this story. There was a servant whose job it was to carry water from a river to his master's house. And he carried the water in two large pots, which he hung on the ends of a pole. And one pot was broken and always um, leaked water. The other one was not broken and it always delivered all the water. Um, So at the end of the walk from the river to the house, the cracked pot was always arriving, always half, half empty. So this went on for a few years. And uh, the unbroken pot, the whole pot, was very proud of its accomplishments. And the cracked pot was always very sad because it was imperfect and it was ashamed that it could only do half of what it was expected to do. So <laughs> the cracked pot said to the master, this, this servant person, said, I, I, I apologize. I must apologize to you. Uh, I've only delivered half of my water because of this leak in my side and because of my flaws, you do all this work, but you only get half the value of your effort. So I'm really sorry that I've messed things up for you. So the water bearer smiled and said, let me show you something. And he walked by, the, took the cracked pot by the path, and he said, have you ever noticed that there are flowers here on your side of the path, but there are no flowers on the other side of the path? So I, I've known about your leaks forever. I've always, I always knew you had leaks. So I planted seeds on your side of the path. And every day as we've been walking back and forth from the river, you've been watering those seeds. And now after several years, due to this unique quality of yours, I've been able to pick beautiful flowers to decorate my master's home. And we, if you didn't have this special quality of all of these cracks, there wouldn't be such beauty in my master's home. So what is it that yoga is trying to say to us? Uh, that we're all cracked pots, you know, we're, <laughs> we're all crack pots. You know? <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, but it's this, that uniqueness of our flaws and imperfections, you might call them, that, uh, that makes life interesting and rewarding. And, and uh, so d- don't hold yourself or, or anyone else up to some rigid standard of, of perfection. Take people for who they are. And, and, and look for the good in them. So I guess, uh, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape or something. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I always love that story. I think that's what we're being reminded of, is you don't need to give in to some artificial image of what a contented life or a full life is. It's already there. Just admire and appreciate the miracle of what's already around us. It's pretty cool. From one crackpot to another, thank you very much. You got it. All right, thank you all so much. It's a pleasure spending time with you as always. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit gitawisdom.org.